Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This will be interesting, I think. I think you'll think so too. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to be at, um, again in verse 26. It's kind of a two-parter because it's the same idea that we were dealing with last week and thinking about. Uh, you remember we said, uh, if you were here, we talked about the regulative principle. Anybody, and everybody was like, we don't, I've, I've never heard of that. But it's the idea of like what belongs in public worship? What doesn't belong? What would the Bible say uh, is appropriate when it comes to the things that we include? So we started talking about that. And um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to continue to think about this idea of the purpose of public worship and what the Bible says uh, it, it's for. What is it for? What does it uh, do for us? And what does God say it should look like? So there we see, and this is interesting again, how is it then, brethren, Paul asks as he writes to this congregation in uh, the first century in Corinth, he says, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification which we said means to build up if anyone speaks in a tongue let there be two or at the most three each in turn and let one interpret interpret but if there is no interpreter let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge but if anything is revealed to another who sits by let the first keep silent for you can all prophesy one, one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. But they are, in, uh, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And we've already got a problem, right? <laughs> so, I'll, I said, I'll mansplain this to you in a few minutes. We'll take a look at why there is a nuance that obviously we're already dealing with in, uh, in our worship. So, uh, where were we? Oh, yeah, verse 35. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for Scripture. Thank you that you've revealed it and given it to us as a, a timeless uh, way for us to understand your purposes. And I pray that you'll help us as we think about this subject matter of public worship. And I pray that you'll use this time to uh, just enlarge our understanding, encourage us, challenge us, and change us, Lord, and convict us too. We pray, and we uh, believe that above all of this is the reality that Jesus is, is Lord, that he deserves to be worshipped and known, and so we pray that uh, you'll help to clarify your truth to us, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And one uh, 
thing we take for granted, I think, each time we read the scripture, and particularly the uh, letters, the epistles, is that they uh, some sometimes are called occasional or situational letters. They had a context. Something was happening specific in the um, situation, situational letter, occasional letter, uh, that was set in a specific time in history, the first century in this case, in a particular place that had dynamics that may or may not uh, reflect or mirror the dynamics that you experience in the place that you worship. And guess what? They did not have 66 books put together in a leather-bound uh, form that we do. They were in the middle of trying to understand what God was saying, right? The first century, uh, Jesus had come to earth, God in human form, we believe, according to the testimony of the Bible. Jesus had died in a substitutional way for the sins of mankind. That was his purpose in coming to earth. Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven, and that's what we find in Scripture and then the apostles proclaimed these realities in congregations, and they took the word of God all over the uh, Asian and European world and uh, the Middle Eastern world and into Africa. And so they became missionaries of this message, but they did so without the, the epistles. They did so without the written gospels. They were beginning to be written and circulated, but we take that for granted in our worship, that they didn't have what we had. And so this became an epistle, this letter to a particular congregation to address some. And what we see when we've gone through 1 Corinthians, and by the way, if you're a guest with us, that's been the approach that we've taken, is to take the Bible and just go verse by verse through it. And to, and to say, all of this is in the Bible, therefore all of this is important. But we have a task involved when we address it to try to understand it, to try to look at it in their context and figure out, okay, what does it mean for us in the uh, 21st century as well? But they were developing an understanding. And so sometimes what, when you read 1 Corinthians, it is full of problems. Not problems in the text itself, but with the human beings that were being addressed and spoken to. And so we've seen a lot of those already, but this chapter is just another example of the fact that we, when we looked at this before, we said their worship was characterized by charismatic excess, is the way I would understand it, is that it was out of control. It was like a three-ring circus. And so he speaks into that to say, we've got to draw this in so that, it doesn't, so that it's not off-putting, to an outsider, so that it's not unhelpful to an insider. He says this has got to be different than the way it's looked before now. And so we need, that's the understanding that we bring to this passage is that they were forming an understanding of pr public worship. And in some ways, we're always doing that, generation after generation. We, it's, for some people, we're young. I'm not in faith. I've been a follower of Christ for over 30 years, but... Some people are. So the first time they set foot in a church, that is the beginning of their experience of life in, with a congregation and in public worship. And uh, you probably, maybe you've heard this phrase before, the church reformed and always reforming. Have you ever heard that? There's a Latin phrase for that. But you'll find it in reformed 
circles at times. The church reformed, which probably we're talking about what happened in the 1500s with Martin Luther, and we're talking about the Reformation, Protestantism, and how it came to be that there was a free church movement, that this church definitely uh, would have a tradition that way in a free church movement. But then the church is always reforming. What does that mean? Does it mean that we're always, uh, we have an ear to the culture around us and we're adjusting to its realities and we're uh, taking our tone from it? No, of course not. That's not what it means to that we're always reforming. Really what the idea is, is that we're always trying to understand what was happening in the first century with the church and we're trying to draw out the eternal and timeless practices and then flesh them out in community with one another. That's what we're doing. And so when we think about the church as reformed in the sense that we're always seeking after its uh, premise the premise that God had when he when Jesus came and he spoke and then when Jesus uh, uh, identified 12 then 11 guys right and then Paul who his claim is that he encountered Jesus in a, a experience that was transformational and everybody around him uh, in the first century says yes that's true Eventually, you remember what happened after Paul was converted. They were afraid of him, right? Why? Because this guy had been arresting Christians and sending them to prison or to death. So they were afraid of him. But then eventually they came to believe that Paul himself had been a converted. He had, he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Then he says he went away to Arabia. And he says while he was there, revelation came to him. And so he comes back and he gives us what basically serves as the foundation for our systematic theology of understanding God in the New Testament. He wrote 13 epistles. And some people think 14 if they believe he wrote Hebrews. But at least 13 of these letters that came to be part of our holy book were written by this person who they, the church in the first century accepted as an apostle. The Apostle Paul, that's what we call him, right? And so when he writes to them, he is writing with that sort of force and authority. And they're in the process of putting this down and eventually deciding what is it that's inspired in the Bible? What is it that we keep? What is it that we lose? And so, of course, this letter is part of what we kept. What uh, Historically, the church fathers understood to have been importance to our faith, the faith, we would say. And so we are constantly adjusting ourselves again and again to understanding what belongs, what doesn't. And so we'll talk about that. They were wrestling here in this context with facets of that. What's the church? What is it? How does it look? What's it, how does it function? But more than that, right? Because we're talking about human beings, male and female. How they're made. What their roles are. I mean, clearly that's a part of this uh, passage as well. So we're going to dive into that, take a look together at what the Scripture is trying to say to us and how we work through it and uh, flesh it out in practice together. So when we look at this passage, the first thing that we see is that God's obvious purpose in public worship is to strengthen believers. 
right? We hope that happens to us today. We hope we didn't leave home for nothing. We hope that something comes to us as a consequence of us deciding that rather than stay at home and do whatever else we were going to do or wherever else we were going to go, that coming here was going to deliver to us something meaningful and something helpful. And so you see that in this passage that he says what you're doing, he gives a list of things that they might have (coughs) committed to do in public worship together. He says you have a psalm, which probably is just like what we did here, a song. Maybe something that someone composed. You know, I've pointed out before that sometimes in 1 Corinthians, the meter and the, the way that the content comes to us describes art, poetry, music. So sometimes in the scripture, that's what we get. The genre is that. Somebody wrote music and they brought it, and then it became part of their worship, and sometimes it became part of the word of God. So it says sometimes you're bringing a psalm. Or it could have been literally the Psalms of David, which were written as a, a, a prayer book and something that was intended to be an aspect of worship. But he says you're bringing these different aspects or elements of worship, a, somehow a teaching, a revelation. Why would it be a revelation? Because, again, this is formative for them. Revelation, the word just means to uncover, to reveal. And so sometimes God was speaking still through prophets in their, in their day. He was still speaking prophecy. That for them, the prophecy, <coughs> it had to match what God was saying in Scripture. So there, that's why there's this idea of, okay, we're testing as we listen. Does what you're saying have evidence in the uh, apostolic message? Did they hear this from Jesus? Did this come out of the Old Testament? And did it come to us? And if not, they go, hey, we're sorry, but we reject this idea. And there are spiritual ideas that we reject, right? If we're wise, there are ideas that we go, hey, that's not Christian. That's sub-Christian or unchristian. We reject that. And so that's an exercise in discernment. It's an exercise in uh, listening and knowing and being deepened ourselves. Reading the Bible, now for us. But for them, it would have been familiarity with the Old Testament, the scrolls that they, they had that were circulated. And again, we're, we remember what kind of culture was this? Basically, a uh, very oral culture. Basically, a culture where many people didn't experience higher education, right? Not everybody was educated. In fact, the idea about women in this passage, some of that is that women were not allowed to have an education in first century Rome. And the dynamic for them was very different than 21st century realities would have been. It's a part of the, the, this process that he's, he's talking about when we understand what worship is and what's regular and what's appropriate. And so one thing that's obvious is that the Bible tells us not to relax our grip on public worship. Don't relax your grip on public worship. He- Hebrews 10.25, we're familiar with, says keep coming together to encourage each other to love and good works and so much the more as we see the day approaching. So an aspect of this that we know for sure is important is we can't get out of community what God's intending if we're not in community. 
If we don't get here, if we don't experience the relationships, if we don't hear Scripture proclaimed, if we opt out, then we don't get what God intends out of this whole deal. So that's a, a big important part of this. And COVID's complicated that, even today. You know, I had a text message from somebody that says, hey, I was exposed to COVID. I will not be at church today. They have responsibility, and they reached out and said, hey, that's happened to me. So that's still very real for everybody. And it's disruptive. And now on the other side of it, when it's safe, we begin to get back to the same sort of intensity, hopefully, that we had before. You know, we, we say, I, I can tell you for me, it's too important to connect with other believers. I would do it if I weren't called to ministry. I did it before I was called to ministry. I left home. I went to be with other Christians and realized there was, it was in God's plan. He decided that I needed that. The word ecclesia that is translated church uh, was stolen, basically, or borrowed from Roman culture. It just meant a public gathering, a gathering. So there's no way to understand it apart from like taking the action of moving together with other people. That was what they did. They gathered. And the church was a gathering, and it is a gathering of, of people. And so my life with its challenges constantly reminds me of my need for other people to be on this journey with. That life is a journey. That it, it is happening and surprising me at times with what's happening along in the journey. But the fact is I need other followers of Jesus, people that are committed to the same realities that I am, that I'm doing this alongside of, and so do you. So the gathered assembly reminds us of important things. It reminds us of our need for prayer, for one thing. It reminds us when we intentionally leave home and come together with other people that at the center of everything in life is God, right? When I did this, that's what I was testifying to in my behavior. I left home. I came here because God is at the center of everything. And I need a weekly reminder of that. Not, I'm more than a weekly, but this is an important weekly marker to say God is at the center of everything. Prayer is what holds us together and, and how we connect to God as we pray. Praying is an important part of what we do as we come together. The assembly of the saints reminds us that we have resurrection hope. I leave home and come here or somewhere else if not here because I know that Jesus was raised from the, from the grave. And I know I'll be raised from the grave. And I know in that is hope. That's hope. And hope for a Christian doesn't mean hope so hope. It means we know so. It's a fundamental truth that God's our life. He's alive. His life, the fact that he was raised from the, the grave gives my life meaning, his, his life. So it's about that resurrection hope. And the gathered assembly reminds us of, that, of those kinds of things. The body of Christ is not intended to be severed and disjointed. It's already been described as a body, and we know that the body is connected, and we went through all that in great detail, that I need every part of what makes up a body to be healthy and, and and so the analogy is you are members of each other all of us are members of the body of Christ and we're all needed to for the body to flourish and be healthy and vital if the church is and Jesus is our head 
He's the head, we're the members. So he's in authority over us and we are submitted to him as Lord. The confession that leads to salvation is Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.10, I love how simple it is, is that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll, we'll be saved. So we're under his lordship, we're, we're brought together in community. God himself demonstrates in his own personality that we need community. Did you know that God is in community? He was before he made people because of the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In himself, God, one God in three persons was already in community. And, but he says you, to flourish, need community. I love this. I've been reading through Hebrews in my own, own uh, Bible study time at, at home. It says that we need others. And it, it says, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fail but become strong. You ever feel that way? When I read that, I'm like, I feel that way. I feel weak. I feel, uh, you know, even though this is what I want to do with my life and what I believe is the highest truth, I also experience it as a struggle. And the people around us reinforce to us and hopefully help us to, to live out this life. That's what Hebrews says. It's in that same chapter that, uh, or in the same part of Hebrews, uh, that gives us ethical ideas of, and what we need. And, and it says you need to keep coming together and part of why you do is because you find strength from the people around you. Our impulse when we're hurt, disappointed, frustrated, and discouraged is to retreat from the very people, place, and uh, person, most importantly, that we need. You know, a lot of times people, when they experience hurt, they, they say, I'm going to check out. When their life is disappointing, they say, I'm going to pull back. But the scripture says, no, that's when you can experience what the body of Christ is really for. When you're disappointed, when you're hurt, when you're struggling. It says, no, gravitate then to that uh, place that God gives to you. It's a place with people and the person, right? God himself that we encounter together and have already encountered in our worship. So we see in this passage, his pur purpose in public worship is to strengthen us, to edify to build up, but also his purpose in public worship, worship is for peace and not bedlam. They had bedlam, which is unhelpful. You know, imagine coming to church every Sunday and experiencing chaos. Do, do you not get enough chaos in the world? I mean, I do. I have enough chaos everywhere else. That's not what I want when I come together with other followers of Christ. So what happened when the church gathered mattered. It was important. And when we don't keep the main thing, the main thing, people are less likely to encounter Jesus among us. And there's nothing more important than the possibility that somebody might encounter Jesus among us. That they might hear that there is a name above every name. That there is one that the Bible says in the future, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the, uh, God the Father. That there is someone who can change your destiny, who can change your life, who can give you help that you didn't have before, who can re redirect and give strength, who can forgive the 
uh, handwriting offenses that the Bible says is contrary to us because God is a righteous judge and the righteous one, the Bible says, died for the unrighteous ones. The one who was flawless died for the flawed ones. Who? You, me, all of us. So his perfection and his sacrifice became for us the possibility of forgiveness. And so we don't want to be in the way of that. We don't want to be in the way of someone being able to encounter this life-changing Savior. And, but that was the kind of stuff that was happening in their, in their public worship. And he gives them specific directives to keep them on track. When you look at this, he's like, if they're... He's like, you can't, a worship service can't last forever, for one thing. And all God's people said, amen, it can't last forever. We are, we are trained now. I read something just this week that said uh, a person's attention span is uh, eight seconds. We reset our attention span about every eight. I'm sorry, but I don't have any eight-second messages to preach. But, but we do know that people have a limited sort of uh, attention span as an aspect of, you know, why they couldn't go on forever and ever. And he's giving them limits. And sometimes he's telling them, uh, you should just be quiet. <laughs> you know, that's a healthy thing, too. So their worship uh, was distracting away from God's glory. And the only reason that we have to come together is God's glory. The fact that God deserves to be glorified and known and seen clearly. And yet everything that they did was distracted away from that. And of course, it had degenerated into a performance. That's the whole... The, whole, why, the reason I think uh, it, he tells them you have to have somebody interpret when you're speaking in tongues is because like we, we talked about last week, mostly what they were doing was gibberish. It was gibberish that was meant to attract attention to their self and he says, look, if there's nobody there that can interpret your gibberish, just be quiet. That's what he says. And so he gives them these directions because they're performing. That's what they're doing. Their uh, uh, worship isn't really worship. And so it's the worst thing that they could do is to do something that is about them. It attracts attention to the person, to the worshiper, not to the one who should be worshipped. So they excuse that by saying, hey, we're just caught up in the Spirit. What does he say to that in verse 32? He says, no, the Spirit of the worshiper is subject to himself. He's like, in other words, don't do dumb things and blame it on God. That's what he's saying. Like you're doing all these uh, dumb things and you're blaming on God. He's like, no, your Spirit is subject to you. You're not just caught up in something. You're responsible. That's what he's saying. You're responsible. So he's setting healthy limits in worship here for them. Their worship in ours requires discernment, thoughtfulness, critical biblical scrutiny, so that we, have, we end up with orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, cutting straight. So now we do have the scripture and we can understand uh, what God says is critical and important to us. So the idea of keeping silent recurs in this passage. And one thing I think that he's saying is that frenetic activity doesn't necessarily indicate godliness. It's like you can have a bunch of noise that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's going to help people to encounter God. 
So I, I thought about this, how often the Bible talks about being quiet and being still and reflective. And, uh, you know, we don't always make time for that in our public worship and maybe not in our private worship. But God tells people to be quiet fairly often in the Bible. Think about Peter. You remember how Peter, impetuous, outspoken, gifted to put his foot in his mouth, right? Wrong, says the wrong thing at the wrong time when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember Peter's like, I know what we should do. Let's build booths for you and Elijah and Moses. And you remember what God says? Why don't you be quiet and let my son do the talking, you know, right now? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Same thing in the book of Job. There, there's this whole, most of Job is a conversation, a dialogue that occurs between Job and friends. But when God shows up, he's basically like, why don't you be quiet a while now and let me do some talking? And so sometimes, you know, when I look at Scripture and I think about, the, you know, I look for things in passages that re recur three times in this passage. Paul says, let them keep silent. Let them keep silent in different contexts. And we're going we're gonna to get to all, you know, to the rest of this too. But he's, he, in the Bible it says, uh, in Proverbs, a person who's quiet can appear wise. May not be wise. It says, but if you keep your mouth closed, people may think you're wise. Avoid sin. Because the Bible says, in the multitude of words, sin's not lacking. But whoever disciplines his mouth is wise. In other words, the more we talk, the more likely we are to say something inappropriate or wrong. And so the Bible says, uh, you can avoid sin, gain respect, exalt God. Isaiah said, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. James says, let everyone be slow to speak. But their gathering was noticeably noisy. So he says to them at times, you know, in this situation, keep silent. In that situation, keep silent. And then thirdly, God's purpose in public worship won't contradict the narrative of Scripture. His purpose in worship won't contradict the narrative of Scripture. In other words, God's not going to ever uh, say something is okay that contradicts the rest of the Bible. So, you remember how we said before, I had a professor that would say, now abide these three, context, context, and context, and the greatest of these is context, context. So, we have to know, why is he saying some of the things that he says, and, and uh these are difficult verses for a few reasons. One reason, that the part in here that talks about women and public worship is difficult is because it annoys a modern sensibility in a way. Or that it's easy to misunderstand. Or that we just don't, I've said this a ton, I don't think Christians do nuance all that well. Nuance means like, hey, well, I've got to wade in here and do some critical thinking. I've got, I have to get underneath the surface, right? That's nuance. Sometimes we just want everything to be black and white, and I'm sorry, but it's not black and white. Not always in the, in the sense that we're, we don't have to do some work to get at what's intended. And so in this passage, one thing we know for sure is that it cannot be a tacit rejection of a woman's right to say anything at church. Whew. It's a relief, right, Renee? <laughs> 
It is not a tacit rejection of a woman's right to say anything at church. That's not the context or it's not what we can... How do we know? Because if, if you read 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 5 that we've already seen, he talks about women praying and women prophesying in public worship. And he talked about head coverings, which was a difficult idea also. But we already see that women did participate in public worship because it says so. And a person, I'll just give you some thoughts that people express when they read through these uh, passages and commentaries and stuff. They, a person might say, well, Paul uh, acknowledged what they were doing, but he didn't say it was right. That's an argument that sometimes uh, people will make. But we also know there were prophetesses in the Bible, right, in the New Testament. When Jesus' uh, parents take him to the temple, they encounter Anna, who's designated a prophetess in uh, Scripture. Also, uh, in the book of Acts, the uh, in the book of Philipp, or uh, not the book of Philippians, but Philip, the evangelist, it says had virgin daughters who uh, were prophetesses who prophesied. So. We do know that it's both the New Testament and Old Testament reality that women were prophetesses in the first century world. So also Joel chapter 2 verse 28 says, In the last days your young men and women will prophesy. So that's in the Bible. And it, it maybe uh, complicates things for people that just like everything to be really simple and straightforward but I mean when you study that's what you find is that th this was a reality but we said too in the first century it was usually women were taught culturally you do not speak in public your husband is embarrassed and shamed just like Paul says in the passage and I think there's more to it than that I think their local problem when we think about the context and the fact this is a situational letter an occasional letter in other words, written to address a specific occasion is that uh, specific to what he says here, women possibly were evaluating prophecies and contradicting their husbands in public. So that's what I think he finds a problem with. And I think the reason he finds a problem with that is because of uh, what we would call a creation ordinance. And... Again, I'm giving you ideas that maybe it, you may not have heard of a creation ordinance. Maybe you have. But the Bible basically says, I, have you read Genesis lately? The narrative of Genesis says this is what happened. God created a what? A what? A man. He created a man. Then did what uh, God after that created what else? Well, an, animals. <laughs> Sequentially. According to, he created animals, and he named the animals, and I've heard people say, what, what didn't the man find among the animals? Anything like him. There was nothing like him. Nothing suitable is the way the Bible put Nothing. We're like, Phew, that's a relief. Don't want to be married to a cat or a dog or anything like that. So then God takes from the man's side a rib and fashions a woman, right? Here, here's what we have to decide at some point when we're reading the Bible is what parts of it do we think are timeless and relevant and real and what parts of it are we willing to set aside? You, have you ever uh, read about Thomas Jefferson? He was president of uh, the United States who 
took a pen knife and he cut out parts of the Bible because he didn't believe in miracles. So anything that uh, upset his sensibilities, he cut it out and he made his own Bible. Well, if you're not careful, what you'll end up doing is the very same thing. You know, as we take these parts of the Bible, we say, well, I don't believe that part of it. Well, you can't, if you do that, what is, if, if you're familiar, Genesis means beginnings. It's like God's giving you the first stuff for all of humankind, for all, all of history and eternity. So in there, he says, I created man first, and then he created woman to be a helper to him. So we've talked about this before at other places in 1 Corinthians. What does that mean? She's his, she's his uh, foot mat? No. She's less smart than him? Probably not. Probably not. That it, what it, it doesn't mean uh, that there's a lack of equality because God made both people in his image. But our understanding of Scripture is that he gave to man the responsibility to lead and to be the, what? The head. So is that culturally popular? No, it is not. But in the creation ordinance, and it, you find, just go read the first three chapters of Genesis, and this is what you find, that the Bible says God created the man, he created a woman to be a helper. They both fell, and God pronounced things about their experience going forward on the basis of the fall of humankind. So Christians believe the world is fallen. We believe in the fall. We believe that sin is real. We believe that because of, uh, the Bible says, as through one man sin entered the world, and by sin death, therefore death spread to all people, and that all have sinned. So the Bible says sin was introduced and that God pronounced curses as a consequence of sin. And to the woman, an aspect of what he said to her is your, your labor will be, uh, be increased in childbirth and your husband will be... I don't think this was a part of the curse, but his, uh, the part of it is that your desire will be to be over him. Your desire will be to be over him. And I think what you see here, and you can go read a bunch of commentaries yourself and think through this passage carefully for yourself, is that they had an expression happen in this congregation that was not part of God's purpose for local churches in the sense that God gave leadership to men. And again, uh, culturally, people may chafe at that and not like it. And in fact, if somebody said, do you, so you don't believe in women preachers? I'd say, I believe in them in the sense that I know that there are women preachers, yes, in society. And 86, I was doing some research this week. Uh, Penn State University has a really helpful um, website on demographics that, well, the uh, website is uh, different than Penn State, but... It does statistics, and 86% of faith leaders in the United States are male. Are male. And, and all it shows us is traditionally, historically, that's been our understanding. So people can go and find, in fact, I've told folks, I don't, she probably doesn't listen to our live stream or anything like that, but I have an aunt who is a, an evangelist and church planter in Church of God. And more people by far know who she is than would know who I am. And so you'll find expressions of Christianity where people say, I, in fact, I talked to a few Church of God friends this week just to get perspective. I'm like, how, to explain to me, you know, kind of this dynamic. And, and um, so I'm always trying to listen and to understand. 
But most conservative churches have decided that leadership in the New Testament was men. Men were elders, men were pastors. This church certainly follows that tradition and that understanding. And it's because of, we would say, okay, we're not under the law, we're under grace, right? So the law, if the law dictates something, uh, but the creation ordinance, what God gave us about what human beings, male and female, are like predates even Moses. It goes back to, well, unless you think Moses wrote Genesis, which a lot of people do. But it, it goes before the Mosaic law, and, and we find that. So when we read about this, it's why it's fine for a woman to speak in public, but not if it's for the intent and purpose of, or in church, I should say, not in public, if, it, if the purpose is not to undermine the, the authority of the congregational leaders who God gave that are men. Okay, you can take me to task for all this later. It's just I understand no scripture. Lastly, God's purpose in public uh, worship follow a historic revealed order. So the church was born and revealed in the heart of God. <coughs> People didn't think it up. It's his church, not ours. But simultaneously, we are the church. And so when Paul talks here about the word, did the word of God originally come from you, the answer implied is no, of course not. Or was it you only that it reached? No, it reached lots of places and lots of congregations, he says. And so what we see is that we are the church if we belong to Jesus, and God uses us to shape it, shape it but we cannot shape the church without regard for the master's intent. We, we say the church is reformed, always reforming. We're always trying to understand the biblical tenets of faith, the way that faith ought to be experienced and expressed when we're in public worship. And that's what, what Paul claims here is that God has given to him a role as an apostle that he's speaking inspired truth to us. So 2 Peter 1.21 says, Prophecy never had its origin in the human will. The prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration is the idea that Paul is saying. What he's saying here is uh, you should listen because God is given through me inspiration. And now it's historic. We accept it because it's been passed down to us. For thousands and thousands of years by people who as they compared what they were hearing said this matches important points of understanding like the creation ordinance the what we find in genesis it's not contradictory it's harmonized and it, it uh, flows with what uh, other things we've heard from jesus and from the prophets and sometimes people this irks me will say jesus didn't say anything about this or that <clears throat> but Jesus also said that no, no jot or tittle of the law would pass away until it was fulfilled. Jesus affirms everything that, in fact, Jesus authored, right? Everything that you find in the Old Testament. So there's nothing that Jesus, he, there's a lot of things that he didn't speak to directly, but if the Bible speaks to it, in fact, he did speak to it. Because he's the author of scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so he affirmed and authored the scripture 
himself. And so that's such a weak argument for people to say, Jesus didn't speak about that. Yes, he did. Because he, he spoke all of Scripture. And his, his person is the force behind all of Scripture. And so Paul is claiming here this basic Christian concept of inspiration. He said, I'm speaking under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that God has been speaking through history. He spoke through a nation. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through the nation of Israel. He spoke through prophets like Moses and Amos and Daniel and Isaiah. And then in the New Testament, people like Paul and the apostles that, that, uh, were, that were witnesses and friends of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so he confirms here for us this uh, fact that God cares enough to speak. Aren't you glad that God cares enough to speak? Even if what he says sometimes is complicated and hard and makes you think and is nuanced and difficult, Aren't you glad you're not wandering aimlessly through life, wondering what things mean? And, and by the way, the biggest things that, uh, thing that it means is that Jesus Christ is God and uh, that he came here to, to win us and rescue us and redeem us through his life and his sac sacrifice of himself. But he says if anybody ignores this, they should be ignored. The idea that, there's, uh, that the world is not a, a place that everything's relative that you just make it up as you go along, that there is inspired truth. And he said, God wants worship. That's what the uh, scripture teaches us, that God, God created people to worship him. If you're a fully functioning person in the way that God intends, that means you'll also be a worshiper. You'll be a worshiper. And when we ignore scripture, we end up with, uh, with quasi-Christian cults, cults. C-U-L-T-S. A cult is a uh, group that's deviated from Scripture somewhere. I, this one writer said, cults are the unpaid bills of the church. You know what he means by that? Is like we, because we weren't discerning of what's true. And almost always with cults, what you find out is they reject the divinity of Jesus. They say there's no way Jesus is God and human. That's not an acceptable uh, idea to us. Or they, they insert works in the place for salvation. They say you've got to do all these things and then God will accept you. And, you know, there are clear ways that they've gone off course. And the correction is for us to know the, the scripture and to, and to care enough to do the hard work that it takes sometimes to, to uh, understand it, to read it, to listen to trusted Bible teachers but mostly, you know, I would say read, read, read for yourself. The chaos, uh, this is a quote from a guy named J. Harold Smith, an evangelist. He says, the chaos of the present world speaks of the need to begin anew to spread the good news. Consequently, I would say what the world doesn't need is the church as a source of even more chaos. He says, the world's chaotic. It needs truth. It needs Jesus. What it doesn't need is for the church to be just another source of chaos. God is looking for people, the Bible says, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that worship begins with knowing Jesus. That's where it starts. We're worshipers when we know him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, the Bible says. So I hope you can say this morning, I know for certain that I have eternal life and that I'll go to heaven when I die. 
I hope, you know, as you think about your life, you could say, I know that. I know for certain I have eternal life and I'll go to heaven when I die. The only way to know it is to know Jesus. He is God's he's salvation. There's not salvation in anyone else, the Bible says. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our, our Savior. And that certainty comes because we know uh, what he did that we could never do for ourselves. That he, he, eternal God became man and wiped out the handwriting of offenses that was against us. And he came here to reconcile people that the Bible describes as aliens and enemies. We are alien, enemies, rebels. But, but we became the friends of God through faith as we surrender our rebellion, as we draw near to him. I love how the Bible says draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But it also talks about repentance. Repentance means I recognize that I've got all this garbage sin in my life that interferes with me being able to be in fellowship with God and as we come we recognize Jesus paid for that and then we live our lives as worshipers and part of his family and now we've come full circle that's the church where we started and there's this purpose that it should be a clear manifestation of the God that we worship and I think that's what Paul's been giving us in this uh, passage today we're going to have a time of commitment this morning, and as we uh, do this and the musicians play, if there's a need that you have to respond, I invite you to do that. Uh, the Bible always calls people to respond to uh, Jesus publicly, and maybe you never have responded to him publicly. You know, I went to church to the gathering of God's people many, many, many times before I was willing to say, I'm identifying with these people and what they believe because I believe it myself. And, you know, one of the ways we do th that is through baptism. In fact, I think it's an important first step for us to publicly identify with Jesus. And so maybe you need to be baptized and begin to follow Jesus in your life. And that's what this is, is an opportunity for you to respond publicly in, uh, in that way. So stand with me, and we're going to pray. And then I'll invite you to... to